If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. We've been studying the fruit of the Spirit, and with each word that we have unpacked, we have been introduced to another aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that our actions will be representative of our heart's condition. And he has told us in the verses that precede the fruit of the Spirit that if we walk in the flesh, it will be manifest in our carnal or corrupt or vile behavior, and he lists it out. And then he makes it abundantly clear that if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we are walking in submission to the Holy Spirit, then other things will be manifest, they'll be visible, they'll be seen, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. And in verses 22 and 23, he lists explicitly what will be manifest in our lives if we are walking in the Spirit. Here's what he says in verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. This morning we're going to look at the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that is faith. Maybe it would help if I amplified it by saying faithfulness. Because that word communicates to us to be faithful. That word communicates that we would be trustworthy, loyal, steadfast in devotion, in allegiance. To be constant, staunch, to be enduring, to not quit, to not capitulate. When the Apostle Paul's life and ministry was winding down, he writes the letter to Timothy that we would call 2 Timothy. In it, as his ministry is closing down, he references to us that people have walked away from him and many that he ministered to have turned their backs on him. He is in a prison cell. He is near an unfair trial where he will be executed and yet he is conveying hope. He is somewhat striking a triumphant tone. He uses words like, I have finished and I have kept. If I were to attempt to depict to you what the fruit of the Spirit, that is faith, would look like in a life, it would look like that moment for the Apostle Paul. Allegiant, devoted, enduring to the very end. Whenever you and I describe someone as faithful, and the Bible is the same, very infrequently are we talking about how much faith that person has. But rather, we are talking about how much faith, in effect, we can place into that person. Fidelity or faithfulness in our world, in our culture, is in short supply. A faithful individual we encounter far too infrequently, but it has always been that way. Solomon, in his assessment of Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 6, says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. You can hear the frustration within him as he leads a nation, as he is surrounded by people who press on him constantly, and he asks something, 
And in asking it, he communicates to us the reality of his day and ours. A faithful man, a faithful woman, who can find? This is a virtue, this is a fruit of the Spirit that should be evident in our lives. Perhaps the greatest responsibility that we have on a morning like this is to grasp that the truth of the Scripture and what is communicated this morning mandates that we begin with us. We can't be considering somebody else that is around us. We must be faithful. Every time that we've studied one of the fruits or aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we have begun with God because the fruit of the Spirit is individual believers like us showing out the nature of God. If the gospel is to be potent, if the church of Jesus Christ is to be a true catalyst for change, then the world needs to see that we are like our Father which is in heaven. The only way for us to truly exhibit godliness or Christ-likeness is to have the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our lives, and that means we must be faithful and The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, that God is faithful. He's described as the faithful God. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, it's said succinctly by the Apostle Paul, God is faithful. God is the ultimate example of faithfulness. He will never break his promises to you. He is aware that we are frail. He is aware that we are faulty. And there will be times that we are faithless or unfaithful to him. But even in our unfaithfulness, he is still faithful. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful. And God's expectation for individual believers like us is that we would also be faithful. Now that sounds like an assignment with a staggering amount of work. It sounds almost impossible to scale this mountain of faithfulness. But understand, we have everything that we need to be faithful right here and now. As a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are equipped with everything that we could possibly need. Jesus assessed in Luke 16, 10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Just by communicating that fact, Jesus declares that it is possible for us to be faithful individuals. Starting here and starting now. The only way to grow, and this is really deep, the only way to grow in faith is to practice faithfulness. The best place for us to start is by identifying the people and the responsibilities that God has entrusted to us now. I'm good at wishing life away. I wish it was vacation. How many of you wish you were on vacation right now? All right. How many of you wish actual spring weather would show up? Mm-hmm. How many of you wish I wasn't preaching? Be careful. <laughs> My hand is up, not as an example. I also wish I was just sitting. I wish I have the tendency to wish my life away. I have the propensity to imagine that I might spiritually excel if my situation or circumstances or conditions of life were somewhat altered. 
I might think that I will grow exponentially when I attain the next phase. The only way to grow in faith is to practice faithfulness. And the best place to start practicing faithfulness is with the people that are currently surrounding you and the responsibilities and opportunities that you currently have. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, speaking of servants of the Lord, it is required in stewards, in servants, that a man be found faithful. I know that everyone wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we have all that we need in Scripture to attain that. If we're studying the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we're practically doing, and we grasp that if we are in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, we will not capitulate, we will not live out the lusts of the flesh, but we will manifest the fruit of the Spirit, then we have to be equipped to carry it out. God is faithful, we should be faithful as well. God is faithful and mandates it of us. How can I walk in faithfulness? Jesus tells a story in the New Testament that equips us to walk in faithfulness. We would call it the parable of the talents. In it, Jesus tells us, shows us, equips us to walk in faith. And I believe that it boils down to two simple words, ownership and stewardship. Jesus never told a story for mere entertainment value. He tells stories that have equipping and edifying value. Here's what he says in Matthew 25. Jesus is now telling this parable, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. He says, the kingdom of heaven, it's just like this. It's like a man traveling into a far country who called, get this, his own servants And delivered unto them, note this, his goods. And unto the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man, according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Jesus is telling a story. This is a parable. We might say it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's Jesus telling us a story in terms that we can grasp as human beings, but he is raising our eyes with a spiritual principle attached. So when Jesus says, think in your mind of a wealthy landowner who calls his own servants unto them and distributes unto them some talents, five, two, and one. Now, I know what you're thinking. You think like I think. What in the world is a talent? A talent is a lot of money. It was probably a weight more than an individual monetary unit, but it's a lot. In fact, if your net worth was one talent, you were well off. If your net worth was more than one talent, you were rich. So we are being coerced, forced into seeing a very wealthy landowner, and he is distributing talents. Now, it is, it is inescapable that there is a financial component to this. We'll see that they exchange with businessmen. There's a financial component. But we also grasp that these talents are opportunities and responsibilities given to each of these servants. If we take the etymology of the word talent that we would use in the English, we're we're not talking about money, but gifts and abilities. These talents represent opportunities to use these abilities. This story is about diligence. This story is a call on believers to work. 
There are two points that we can concern ourselves with. In a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating Easter. We will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ, believers have a responsibility. And not one of us can be apathetic. Not one of us can merely spectate. All of us must be diligent. Let me be very clear as well. In Matthew chapter 25, the man in verse 14 is called the Lord throughout the rest of the parable. Grasp that this is Jesus. This is the Lord distributing these talents. Now, if we're going to settle on these two words to help us walk in faith, we can see it all through here. Ownership and stewardship. Note this. He said he called unto him his own servants. His own servants. The word that is used there is the word doulos. There's a word that I could say that will smack our ear. It'll sting a little bit. It is the word slave. The word doulos communicates slavery. Now, in our mind, historically speaking, there's a negative connotation. Certainly, we grasp that. But as it comes over into the spiritual realm, understand slavery to Christ is highly exalted. Doulos, the verb form here means to bind, to get it in this way. A believer is bound to Christ as a slave is bound to his master. In the Greek world, a derogatory term to believers anything but. The Apostle Paul referred to himself and to Timothy as servants. Peter referred to himself in the same way in 2 Peter 1. Jude, in the first verse of his letter, says, I am a servant. I am a doulos. I am bound to Jesus Christ like a slave is bound to his master. I don't view it derogatorily. I view it as a position that is exalted in my eyes. His own servants were called to him. For the genuine believer, doulos communicates ownership. Possession, allegiance, dependence, subjection, loyalty, fidelity. So practically speaking, why do I have to understand that as a believer, if I am ever going to walk in faith, I must understand at the base I am his servant. Let me read what one wrote. The reason the average Christian isn't living out faithfulness is because he or she has replaced the idea of the Christian surrendering to Jesus Christ as a master with the idea that if you come to Jesus, you're going to have your best life ever. We have replaced the idea that a walk with Christ is subjection to him like a slave to a master with the idea that coming to Christ means we're going to have our best life. We're going to have a wonderful life. But Jesus is communicating an earthly story that we can grasp to lift our eyes to a spiritual principle. And he is telling us explicitly, I called my own servants. I could say it to you plainly in this way. Your life and my life is not our own. Your life is not meant to be spent pursuing your aims and ends, chasing down your cause, You and I are not our own as believers, but we have been bought with a price. Can you hear the terms of servanthood and slavery even used within salvation? We no longer belong to ourselves. We're subject to his will and control. We're called to give an account unto him. The point is he called those who were his own servants. He had purchased them. 
The foundational principle for us is this. I have to begin to practice faithfulness with the people and the responsibilities that are in my immediate vicinity. I do that by altering my thoughts and altering my heart set with this reality. I am not my own. I have been gifted this life. I have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I now carry the responsibility to live for his cause. Secondarily, the master said, I called my own servants, and I gave unto them my goods. His goods were gifted into their hands. This has a clear implication. We can never undervalue what we have been given. And we must always live with the awareness that what we have been given is not ours, but is his. And I'm not trying to use a scare tactic here, but he can take it back anytime that he wants. He gave it, and he can take it. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is natural to us to demand that things be ours. Nobody likes to give up their seat. Nobody likes to have to park far away. We don't have a lot of videos of our kids because, frankly, we're old people. And we didn't have cell phones that just took video of our kids all the time. And I'm glad for it. So I don't have to see myself in my younger days and confront the fact that I'm an old man. I don't want to have to see my parenting style on video for the rest of my life. But I do know that we have video of my daughter's birthday party very young. My son younger than her. My son just able to put together a few words. One of the words that he could put together was the word mine. And my daughter was opening presents and in these little gift bags, down in the bottom of a gift bag was a gift and on top of the gift in the gift bag was tissue paper. And she would take the tissue paper out, and my son will walk over, and he'll take the tissue paper, and he'll say, mine. He was ruining the party, just like his dad. But I'm a Baptist pastor. My job is to ruin the party. Every party, all parties, all the time. He would take the tissue paper. He wasn't after the gift that was in the bag. He wasn't after the bag. All he wanted was the tissue paper. Mine, 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 mine. We could go down to the nursery. You've lived it in your own home. The fact is you confront it in your own heart. Our natural default setting is to demand ownership of everything around us even stuff that doesn't belong to us. And what Jesus is forcing the believer to understand is not only are we not our own, even that which we have amassed, it's not ours either. It is his. All that we have is his. The Apostle Paul used this idea throughout Scripture. The idea of grace, charis, that is a gift being given to us. Romans 12, 3, he says, I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He grasped that his responsibility to write was a gift that God gave him. He understood that his unique calling was a gift that God gave him. 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. Those are not words of conceit and arrogance. He grasps my unique calling is God's gift to me. It's the talent that I've been given. It's my responsibility. 
his unique abilities, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed on me, was not in vain. God has entrusted something to me. When he says, I have kept the faith, he's articulating everything that was deposited in me by God, I have faithfully kept until the end. He lived with the awareness that what he had was not his own. I am not my own, my goods are not mine, and then we pivot, and we see the servant's work. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 25, 16. Then he that had received five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents, and likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. Here's a word of change, but he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. In the language is implied immediately these profitable servants got to work. Straightway they got to work. Straightway the five-talenter got to work. And likewise the two-talenter. And then we note a word in there that changes tone, but. And we see the opposite of industry. We see the lack of immediacy. The third servant eventually got around to doing something, and the something that he eventually got around to doing was digging a hole and hiding money in it. If we study the verbiage just a little further, you'll note the contrast between the aggressive and the recessive verbs. Instead of saying traded and made, we read dug and hid. Each servant's gifts bore fruit in proportion to the talents that he received. The five-talent guy bears five. He bears more. The two-talent guy, he bears two. And the one-talenter takes his talent as bestowed upon him by his master and hides it in the ground. Now, if I were honest, I would say the one-talent, the unprofitable, he's termed as wicked and slothful servant, he did put out some energy. He had to dig a hole. He did invest some time. Clearly, it took time to dig a hole and hide the talent in the ground, to bury it there. The problem was he invested his time and his energy in his own cause and not that which furthered the cause of the master. The use of that single gift should have occupied his days and his hours between the servant, or sorry, the master's leaving and his arriving again, but instead... He spends it on himself. Now, all we're doing is taking this simple walk. I must mirror, reflect the nature of my heavenly Father, God, in the Spirit. God is faithful. He expects me to be faithful. If I am ever going to grow in faith, I have to practice faithfulness. I can't wait. I must begin here and now with you people and this set of responsibilities. I must live with the awareness that he owns me and he owns all of my goods and that I have a window of time between the resurrection and the return to be about his work. And then I want you to notice this. Here comes the master again and he shows up and the term is reckoning. Now I know we're in church on a Sunday morning and the last thing we should do is read a lot of Bible. But bear with me because I'm going to read a significant chunk of scripture that scares people. We're in church, it's allowed. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. That's a business term. He opens up the ledger. He is looking explicitly at their behavior and their activity with the talents that he has given them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents saying, Lord, 
Thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Understand, it's the exact same response from the master to the servant who had five talents and to the servant that had two. They receive the same reward and they hear that phrase that all of us desire to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful doulos. And then comes the third servant. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, and he starts the excuses. Lord, I knew that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed, and I was afraid. And when hid thy talent in the earth, lo, there, thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Now that's a different set of words. Thou wicked and slothful servant. He's going to say this in verse 30, and this is harsh scripture. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now what we're trying to understand is what Jesus wants us to know about this. The master has now returned, and he is reckoning with his servants who have bestowed, who have been given his goods, who have had time to work. And he looks and he sees two servants who did their job and he says in verbal praise, well done, good and faithful servant. But there is a third servant who spends his time and energy on his own cause and not that of his master. And to him, Jesus says, you are wicked and slothful, calling him unprofitable and says, cast him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, let me be careful to help you understand that Jesus is not saying this third servant did not attain salvation because he didn't do enough work for it. What I believe is being clearly communicated is this third servant's lack of work proved that he wasn't truly a servant of the master. His lack of effort was indicative of the fact that he wasn't a child of God. He didn't have to earn his salvation. His lack of work simply proved he didn't have it. But as we gather together in this setting, and I've pastored now long enough to have done a lot of funerals, you'll hear something like this. He would have given you the shirt off his back. Has that ever truly been required of anyone to give the shirt off their back? But we hear it at funerals. Here's something else that we hear at the funeral of a believer. Well, by now he's heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And I wonder, has he? Has she? Are you sure they've heard well done? Because we have three servants in this story, and not all three heard well done. The two that heard well done were the ones that took their talents and invested them in the cause of their master. The other did absolutely nothing. Ownership and stewardship are these two words that are driving us at this moment in time. I must ask you this. Are you faithful? Is the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that is faithfulness manifest in your life? 
Are you guarding the deposit? Are you walking worthy of your calling? Are you walking in your vocation? Are you exhibiting that you are a child of light? Are you proving to this lost and dark world that you belong to Jesus Christ? Not merely with your words, but with your actions. Are you showing it to them by the fruit that is coming out of your life? Is one of the fruits in your life faithfulness? And I can tell you, until you understand that you are not your own, you will never grow in faithfulness. You're owned. If you are a child of God, your years, your days, your hours, your opportunities are not yours. They're his. Everything that you have amassed in this life, he has gifted to you. That's sobering. That's humbling. I don't have one thing in eight that has enabled me to amass anything. Anything that I have, God has given to me. I better live with that awareness. There has to be some urgency for us. All of us are getting older. In fact, all of us are older than when we walked in the room. The longer the message goes, the older we get. Some of you look like you've aged in this service. All of us are getting older. Every one of us has shorter and shorter time every time the sun goes up and the sun goes down. Too many of us have become apathetic in why we're here. Too many of us have lost fervor. Too many of us have begun to drift off into purposelessness. We don't know what it's about. We don't know why we're here. We feel like we're insignificant. We imagine that we don't matter. And the very fact that you're present in this place indicates that God has a purpose for you being here. There is a moment in time where you are going to be reckoned with as one of his There's going to be a moment in time where he's going to open up the ledger and he's going to acknowledge what you were gifted with and what you were expected to do with it. And so many of us have wasted years imagining we were our own. We have become misers squeezing everything that we have in our tight fist and we're running out of time. I can tell you that you will never grow in faithfulness until you start practicing it and you start here and now. You start with the wife that you have, the husband that you have. You start with the house that you live in, the car that you're driving, the job you've been given, the circle of influence and friends that you currently are encountering. You start now. That's the press. If our world actually saw a group of believers that manifested love and joy and peace long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and faith, the gospel would have more potency. We live in a dark world, and many times as believers, we throw our hands up and imagine there's nothing we could do. If we would just begin by being right, I think we'd be surprised what God could do. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.